On this episode, we discuss Microsoft making a big game studio purchase, Apple having an event, and most of us like some things about it. And YouTube's bringing back humans. I'll also give my thoughts after one week of using the Pixel 4a and how that compares to my Pixel 2. This and more in this week's show. I'm Kier from Gallifrey Public Radio, a Doctor Who fandom podcast and part of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows in the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. This is the official GunnaGeek.com show. Each week we run down the latest news and happenings in the world of geek. These are your hosts for the show, Steven, Chris, and SP. Welcome to the 46th episode of the 300 series of the official GunnaGeek.com show. I am Steven Jodrew and I am pleased to say Chris Ferrell is here. Wouldn't it be the 46th episode of the third season? I said the 300 series, I think is what I said. Um, It's like series 300. That's what it is. What? I know exactly. Yeah, I blew your mind, and I'm did used Microsoft to doing that. come up with your naming convention for this? <laughs> still, be- still better. But also, <laughs> SP's away again this week. He is still off doing the family thing. Pleased to say that Suncast is here. Hello, everybody. Yes, I'm spying on you. And Suncast, can you remind those people who are checking you out for the first time? First off, um, where they can date you. Uh, secondly, where they can find you. So you can find me on Adult Friend Finder. I'm on there as Chris Farrell. (laughs) He's talking about the Chris Farrell from Nashville, Tennessee, who's a murderer. I am the Chris Farrell everywhere. Thank you. (laughs) But uh, you you can find me at the GFQNetwork.com. That's where we produce a bunch of podcasts. And we've got stuff on there like Matt Men, if you like wrestling, what the tech, if you like tech. Uh, All good stuff over there. And what about if they wanted to, say, get hooked up with some lollipops or something like that? Where could they find you? Uh, I am at, uh, let's see, Central Middle School, and you can wow. find them in Locker 110. Okay, fair enough. That's uh, taking a turn, but the, the ongoing joke was that, for some reason, <laughs> Suncast likes lollipops and he hangs out in the park. I don't remember where it all started, but now this has taken a very different turn. Very different turn. <laughs> And then we we stole from SNL. It was a van down by the river at one point in time, That's too. That's right, I think. If, if you can count on anything, it's for the Gunna Geek show to rip things off. <laughs> Your Stephen John Drew patented promise. Wait, uh, wait, 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 wait. You mean that Stephen's going to start ripping clothes off now? Or maybe a gate off of my front entry because I am the rock. Did you hear about that over the weekend? That was incredible. Yeah. It's pretty great. Yeah, he allegedly uh, ripped using his just pure muscle power, his gate, his automated gate off of his property because the hydraulics, I guess there was a power outage and the release, the manual release did not work. And he's like, I got a crew full of people waiting here and it's going to take 45 minutes to get a tech out. So I got to get to work. And apparently he muscled it open. Beast moded it. Yeah. The picture is pretty impressive. It looks rather heavy. It looks like he hit it with a vehicle, which apparently he did not do. It's crazy. Furious style. Exactly. So if you would like to have your gate ripped off, contact Suncast at Suncast with a K on Twitter. 
he will rip your gate off. Title of Nevermind. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on today. Let's go ahead and roll on to our news. All right, I think this one might end up being a little bit lengthy. So let's start off with Chris Farrell's news. It was a pretty uneventful day today in the world of gaming, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, really uneventful. I was struggling with what my news story was going to be today. I went, eh, maybe I'll talk about PS5 pre-orders and the PS5 reveal since I hadn't had a chance to talk about it. Then at like 10 o'clock, I looked on Twitter. I took a 10-minute break from work while I was refilling my coffee. I went, oh, there's some important news today. So if you are uh, big in playing video games right now for PC or console right now, this news that came out today of who Microsoft has acquired is going to be pretty shocking and surprising. So it was announced today that Microsoft Corporation said it plans to acquire ZeniMax Media Incorporated. Now, for those of you that don't know who that is, that is the owner of the storied video game publisher by the name of Bethesda Software Works. Microsoft's going to pay the paltry sum of $7.5 billion in cash, making this the biggest video game purchase ever. And yes, I said $7.5 billion cash. For comparison, when Disney bought Marvel Comics and all of its properties in 2009, that was $4 billion. When Disney then went and bought Star Wars in 2012, that was $4.05 billion. So add another $3.5 billion, well, that's what Microsoft paid today. So if you're not familiar with Bethesda or video gaming in general, what's the big deal here? Well, here's some background. They publish games you may have heard of, like the Elder Scrolls series, Doom, Fallout. They have upcoming games slated to debut in the next couple years that all fall under those franchises. It's kind of a big deal. It is what is right now, until this acquisition goes through, the biggest privately held game company with 2,300 employees worldwide. And just for... uh, Background purpose, why this is also a big deal. The Elder Scrolls series, since its inception, has sold more than 20 million copies of games, making it one of the top-selling game series of all time. So this is a power move by Microsoft here, and not a cheap move either. Okay, so you listed some big titles. But I still don't understand the value when you did the Disney comparison. Like, I don't, I don't get it. I'm just going to say some of the some of the other things that we have bought or talked about being sold on this show before, those are we thought were big numbers. Four billion dollars for Disney buying Star Wars and about four billion for Marvel. Those were big numbers we were astounded by. This is almost double that for in the world of video games. And people don't necessarily realize that when it comes to the video game industry, it's more profitable than movies right now. Didn't Microsoft buy another video game company or team up with a video game company not too long ago? Microsoft's kind of been on an acquisition spree. I had some notes later on down below, but uh, one of the things they were most famous for was probably almost 10, 15 years ago at this point. They bought Rare, which was the developer that made like the Donkey Kong Country games on the Super Mm -hmm. Nintendo. Also the Perfect Dark series. They have gobbled up a bunch of different developers. I'm trying to... uh, edge my bets to find where I put the notes in here that said what those companies were, <laughs> but I can't find it right now. Well, it's definitely a Microsoft power move. I mean, this has clearly got Microsoft written all over this because, you know, this is kind of what uh, they were known for doing for sure back in the 90s where they would just, okay, well, 
I don't like you and I'm just going to crush the competition and I'm going to buy you out at whatever it costs. And this is kind of the same thing where it's like they're throwing a ton of money at this. Yes, I think there's going to be some benefits to them acquiring them, but I don't know. I think it's it's a very interesting move, and we'll see if it actually shakes out to be something that's good for the consumer. Can I just bring up the fact that today we got this news on the 21st of September 2020? And this is barely on the heels that they lost the TikTok bid. It's weird. Like, if they were like, they put out all this money here, yet they lose the TikTok bid. Well, they've they've been working this for a while. It's not like they lost TikTok and said, screw it, we're going to go buy Zenniworks and all the studios under them. This has been in the works when you started reading for like six plus months, at least. I was just saying like the price tag of this is what I was meaning. The price tag of this, yet they don't put out on one of the most popular social media apps that is currently going on right now. I guess the question is how much more value did Oracle see to it, to uh, TikTok, which I guess they were the ones that were leading last I checked compared to what Microsoft saw. And Microsoft, it's not really one of their core competencies to be like, oh my God, we have to have this social media app where everyone goes and shares videos of them doing strange things. Microsoft kind of has a track record right now of (laughs) buying up a ton of studios. I found my notes. It was literally the next line, but they've had an ongoing expansion plan and go back to 2014. They spent $2.5 billion to buy Mojang, you know, the guys that developed Minecraft. I think that was what I was thinking of. Yeah. Then in 2018, they bought another six studios and then they bought another one last year. So they have bought up a bunch of studios to put under the Xbox games banner. And it's an impressive move. And this gaming side of the house falls more in line with what they're trying to do as, you know, selling Xbox as a service and games as a service than TikTok does. So I kind mm-hmm. of wonder, and I have nothing to back this up. It's just my own opinion, how serious Microsoft actually was about TikTok. They kind of might've gone, oh, we're gonna throw our hat in the ring and maybe we'll get lucky and make it, make this bid happen. But how serious were they really? Because how does this fit with the rest of the products that Microsoft has? Well, Microsoft does not have a good track record with social networks and that sort of aspect. You mean LinkedIn so. isn't fantastic? <laughs> no. and, and you know what? TikTok is like one of those things like Vine is somewhat of a fad or or whatever one of those networks is. It's, I just don't I don't see TikTok being here in five years. You know what? I don't either. You know what Microsoft needs to do um, since they're all into gaming then apparently as you have put up here? Uh they should just go ahead and buy the Madden NFL series of video games uh, because obviously they have had great success integrating the surfaces into the NFL. You know, all coaches and staff have supported the surfaces and have definitely not thrown them across the field on camera. Uh, so so you, I think that you they s- should get involved even further. You said that jokingly. Go back to the original Xbox when it came out. Microsoft whatever developer they had doing it for them had a license to do, I believe was the NFL fever series of games. That was before EA had signed the exclusivity deal with the NFL. And for like three or five years, they actually put out their own NFL game that was arguably better than Madden at times. So it's not like they don't have a history of it. And I'm not, I'm not being overly general when I say that Microsoft has an interest in gaming. They've put billions of dollars into it at this point in time and bought up a ton of studios. If that doesn't, show their commitment to sticking with the Xbox brand in this whole games as a service model. I don't know what does. Okay, so let me ask you this here. Does this impact the PS5 at all? 
Potentially. So uh, th- this takes me into the thought of a lot of people are having, why did Microsoft decide to buy ZeniWorks and specifically Bethesda under them and all those other studios? One thought being to get more exclusives to better combat first-party games on Sony's PS5. Because we do know Sony has some pretty cool exclusives, Jack and Daxter, the Spider-Man games, things like that. But two, more importantly, this is Microsoft continuing to lean on its game subscription service, i.e. Game Pass, to draw on users and boost revenue. And it's interesting because they just announced recently that Game Pass is now up to 15 million subscribers, which is up from the 10 million announced in April. And if you factor in that people are paying anywhere between 10 to $15 a month if they pay a regular price for Game Pass... Game Pass is pretty lucrative business for them. So my thoughts are they're trying to buy up a studio with positive reputation, add a ton of these beloved games to the Game Pass library because there's a bunch of folks that love all the old Fallout games, love the Elder Scrolls games. All of these games, the back catalog are coming to Game Pass and they've made a point of saying, moving forward, this is treated just like any other studio that is owned by Microsoft, meaning day and date release. If you have a Game Pass subscription, it's part of that subscription. So when say, Fallout 6 comes out. You don't have to go and buy it separately. It's included as part of that subscription. And I think that is a major play for them. And one thing you have to realize, and a lot of people were saying this on Reddit also, is like people going, oh, why would I want to buy these games or buy an Xbox and get Game Pass? Because I'll just play them on PC. Well, good. That's what Microsoft wants at this point in time. Because remember, Game Pass Ultimate means all these Xbox games that are PC compatible, also available on PC. Okay, you're not buying their hardware. They're arguably going to lose money on you're subscribing to their service and giving them 15 bucks a month to play these games. They don't care. They're still getting that money out of you if you're buying just the PC version of it and playing there. So it makes a real compelling argument to say, well, I bought a PS5, but now that there's all these cool Bethesda back catalog games, potentially console exclusives coming up, maybe I'll buy a, I'll beef up my gaming PC or something like that and play it. Uh, did you mention anything about PS5 exclusives? So we're building up to that, actually. Here's the biggest interesting thing right now. Bethesda, as it is right now, this deal hasn't been signed with Microsoft yet. They have two games that are timed console exclusives with Sony for the PS5. This means that once the deal goes through, Sony is paying Microsoft to ensure a window of console exclusivity for two games, Deathloop and Ghostwire Tokyo, which made me laugh a lot. Microsoft, specifically Phil Spencer, the head of the Xbox division, said in an interview, that uh, future games like Starfield are all going to be available on Xbox, PC, and Game Pass, and they will take other consoles on a case-by-case basis. So right now, they're honoring all the existing deals that Bethesda had in place in regards to exclusivity and exclusive windows and whether a game is coming out to multiple consoles. And in the future, it's a case-by-case basis to determine whether a future property that was being made by Bethesda will come to all systems or not. And that's where there's a lot of debate and a lot of people questioning, which is, man, I really love the Fallout series. Does that mean I can't play the new Fallout game when it comes out four years or so from now on my PlayStation? Do I have to play it on a PC or an Xbox? We honestly don't know at this point. There is some precedent for Microsoft allowing their games across multiple platforms. Because remember, Microsoft owns Minecraft. Minecraft is on just about any device you can imagine right now. Microsoft also purchased Obsidian Entertainment last year who had made a deal to uh, put the Outer Worlds game out on PS4 and Switch. Game still came out on PS4 and Switch. The DLC still came out on PS4 and Switch as well. They have not, however, said if the Outer Worlds sequel will be multi-platform. This is one of the things we'll have to see, and they're being suitably vague on it. Even uh, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella didn't give quite the definitive answer, but when it came to whether Microsoft may consider releasing games on other platforms in the future, he said... 
When we think about strategy, whether it's in gaming or any other part of Microsoft, each layer has to stand on its own for what it brings. When we talk about our content, we want our content to be broadly available. So it sort of sounds like these things will be broadly available. I don't know. But again, Microsoft's still getting your cash regardless of whether it's console exclusive or not. You either signed up for Game Pass or if you want to buy it on a PS5, you put your 70 bucks down to buy the game because it looks like console game pricing is going up. I have to say, um, I personally, and I'm a bit of a conspiracy theorist, but I think that most of these titles that are cross-platform will probably be pulled in. And the reason I say that is because there have been some exclusive titles that Sony has had for the PlayStation that Microsoft's never been able to overcome. Like, I think you're a good example of that. You... <laughs> You didn't really care about really getting a PlayStation, then Spider-Man came out, right? So, right. so I think, and there's other titles that PlayStation has that people have often credited the PlayStation as and uh, as having. And if they can get these big titles and pull that into their wheelhouse, then that kind of makes them go a little more toe to toe. And I don't think that that's good for consumers. I've said it before. I, I like crossplay. Mm-hmm. I think crossplay is wonderful. I want to see more crossplay, but it feels like. It feels like crossplay is is a dead end, and we're going to go back to that separation of consoles. To be fair, we don't know what they're going to do. And crossplay, I think, is different than crossplay would mean if I owned it on my Xbox, I couldn't play on my PS4. I don't think that's going to be a problem because Microsoft has been very open about their wanting to make it so that you can play a multiplayer game that allows you to interact regardless of where you're playing. But console or game exclusivity, I think, is where we might see things shape up a little differently in the future. But again, we don't know what their move is going to be, and they haven't said anything. I wouldn't be shocked if they take some of these games and make them exclusive to PC and Xbox. And at the same time, there were a lot of people in like the PS5 subreddit and things like that are saying, why would Microsoft want to do that? They'll miss out on the millions of PlayStation gamers. Yeah, but they've also got the millions of PC gamers that it's going to be open to. And, And that's where Microsoft plans have changed a little bit, which is Once they started this Play Anywhere initiative where if you had a game on Xbox, it would also work on PC, it opened the door to a lot more Mm -hmm. customers than were being considered in just the console market because PC gaming, it's a pretty competitive market. And there's a reason places like Steam and Epic Games Store and things like that are constantly churning product. It's because there's a lot of PC gamers out there. And the other thing that I think people overlook when they argue that you're missing all the PlayStation users is that some of those would probably leave if there were some key titles that went to another console. They'll complain, they'll bitch, and they'll moan about it. But ultimately, if they really want those titles, they will hop platforms. Well, and we talked about a little bit when we announced the Series X and S pricing and things like that, that the Series S pricing is pretty compelling a couple years down the line. And let's be honest, None of these games are going to be exclusively locked to Xbox and PC for a couple of years because of pre-existing deals. So two, three years from now, arguably the Series S price may fluctuate a little bit and go down some. We get to a point where that console is somewhere between two to $300 and someone who has a PS5 goes, man, I really want to play insert random Bethesda title here that's going to be exclusive. Well, I'll just sign up and buy the Xbox Series S or I'll buy Game Pass and play it on my PC. And I think that's the move that Microsoft's looking for here. And I think that's where it becomes a little less troubling. Now, I still have my concerns, much like you mentioned, that we're going to have a bunch of exclusive games and we're going to go back to all these exclusive silos 
with every different publisher. Like, oh my God, if I want to play this cool third-party title, I can only play it over here. But if I want to play this one, I can only play it on my Switch. We've kind of been living with it. I don't necessarily like it. But Microsoft, again, is not just saying it's only on Xbox. It's on Xbox and PC, which gives a little bit extra flex to things. Yes, I know I sound a little bit like a Microsoft apologist here, but this is kind of the world we're going to live in for a while. And remember, we don't really get too cranky when we go, when's my Mario 64 game coming to my Microsoft Xbox and things like that. So we have to remember that this big game studio is technically no longer an independent third-party studio when this deal goes through. It's a Microsoft studio. So it's almost analogous to Nintendo putting out a Mario game. Yeah, Mario games expected to be on a Nintendo system. It's not really expected that a Mario game is going to show up on PlayStation or Xbox or Android phone or anything like that. All right. Do you have any other thoughts on this? Uh, just one last thing I wanted to mention. Uh, 21 studios that Microsoft owns right now. Uh, in the past few years, they've gobbled up all these studios, 21 of them, and continue to leverage that as part of their Game Pass initiative. If you've watched any of their media presentations the past couple of years, they keep making a point of saying all of these games coming from these 21 different studios are included as part of Game Pass, and you get a release date as part of that subscription. I think it's become pretty obvious now Microsoft has pivoted to this Xbox and gaming as a service model and consoles are just a necessary mm -hmm. evil they have to sell to get people on there. Like if they could put the Game Pass app on a Switch, I bet they would do it. Do I think the deal is ever going to happen to make that happen? Absolutely not. I'm really interested to see what this does. I, like I said, I, I've got fears about exclusivity coming up again, but I guess, you know, I... Uh, Maybe I'll be proven wrong. I guess we'll find out in a few years. There's a few years that we're going to figure this out, but we'll see what happens in any case. Um, I guess Microsoft's time in, uh, in the Xbox world and the gaming world is here to stay. I know you were wondering that. You're like, hey, they're a new up-and-comer in the world of gaming. Well, I mean, you say that facetiously, but there were folks that were talking about halfway through the Xbox One's run prior to Phil Spencer taking over they were going, oh my God, Microsoft has screwed up the Xbox so much. Are they just going to punt and be like, we're getting out of this because we've got other things that make us more money? That's why I think it's such a big deal to say, hey, they've spent billions of dollars acquiring studios, have 21 studios under their belt, and also have cloud-based gaming and all these other things that are going on that makes it pretty clear Microsoft's not going anywhere. There was a question in a lot of people's minds, and I don't think it was really going to happen, but a lot of people were throwing it out more as a clickbait topic than anything, I bet. Is Microsoft going to leave the gaming arena because the Xbox One sales were so bad and customer response was so bad to it? Suncast, do you have any last thoughts on this? It's going to be very interesting to see how they integrate all this stuff. I think Game Pass is, is a very compelling service. I can definitely see people going for that. Um, it's just a matter of uh, how Microsoft plans to integrate the studio. By all accounts, what they've done with the previous studios they've gobbled up is they've taken a relatively hands-free approach, kind of in the mindset of, hey, you guys know what you're doing, but what we're kinda going to kind of do here is pivot towards targeting the Xbox and the PC side of the market primarily on this. So Rare is the instance everyone brings up. Microsoft ruined Rare. That was Microsoft 10, 15 years ago with a completely different management team. The Phil Spencer-led management team for the Xbox division, I think, has a very different mindset than a lot of other folks did right now, which is they're buying up the talent 
and as I've put it before in some of their events, to let them keep making the same kind of content that they've been doing before, but with Microsoft supporting them with a bit more money that opens more doors and makes it possible to do more things. They've been pretty open about the fact that they've been staying relatively hands-off with things and kind of been acting more as, we'll give you money to make this happen. If you need something, let us know. Now, how that shifts over time, who knows? There's all sorts of uh, rumors and stories about what's happening with 343 Industries and the Halo games and how 343 and the Microsoft relationship may not have worked very well at different times. But I imagine we'll just have to wait and see. I'm relatively confident so long as Phil Spencer continues to be running the games division and the Xbox division. Well, I guess we'll see what happens. Uh, Moving on to the next news point here, uh, I'm going to quickly talk about Apple. That's right. It's Suncast's favorite topic is Apple. Oh, boy. Nap time. Uh, (laughs) So Apple had an event last week, and there's some thoughts that people had at some point about what might be included. And there was somebody in specific that uh, thought there was going to be iPhones released. And guess did, what? There, did we get our Apple TV? Was there, Apple TV here, right. Stephen? <laughs> there, was, there was rumors by, well, in somebody's headcanon that it was going to be Apple TVs and <laughs> iPhones. And unfortunately, that was incorrect. That's right. I'm talking to you, Pioneer Commas Stargate. I know you're all excited for a new iPhone and a possible new Apple TV. No, neither of those things were announced at this past week's Apple event. Just to quickly run down some of the things that were included before I get to the point that I actually wanted to bring up in regard to this event. They announced an Apple Watch Series 6, which was very similar, but but improved in the right ways. Like there's now a... Depending on what model you get. Yeah, fair enough. There is the ability to measure blood oxygen levels. You can take an ECG at any time. Basically, there's more sort of background type apps able to happen, you know, these this monitoring happening more consistently and also an ultimate an altimeter. Uh, so you've got that in there as well. They announced the Apple Watch SE, which is essentially the Apple Watch 5, but reworked also uh, is a lot cheaper. It's like a 279 US price point. They announced a new service. I know what you're saying. You're saying, Stephen, the Apple TV service. Wasn't that enough? That was such a resounding success. Everybody <laughs> signed up for that. Oh, uh, why would they do another service? Well, no. Anyways, they, they did decide to do that. Yeah, Fitness Plus is what it's called. It's essentially them getting in on these fitness services that are going on right now, training, things like that. Obviously, they've probably had this in the works for a long time, but my personal conspiracy theory is that it was like on the short list of like, do we do it? Do we not do it? Like it was on the fence and then COVID happened and everybody's now working out at home and these these um, services that people are doing for personal training are like through the roof and they're like, yeah, let's get in on that since we're doing the Apple Watch anyways. So it is a fitness service that they've introduced. They've also... Uh, and I, I'm in our Discord so server over at gunnageek.com slash Discord. I've been referring to these as the sort of, you know, the the extras, the bonus material within the releases, the the one more thing sort of thing, because most of the event was covering the Apple Watches and the Fitness Plus service. These last couple things are pretty big changes, but they were uh, only a small portion. And that's that they created an Apple Air, or sorry, a new iPad Air. So it's been redesigned. It's got a 10.9 inch liquid retina display as well, a new um, iPad. So they've 
released a couple new iPads in there and they're closing the gap a little bit with the iPad Pro. Uh, the, the iPad Air specifically looks a lot more appealing now. The, the iPad Air is a much more compelling product now because you can buy a pretty well-loaded Air and the keyboard attachment for cheaper than an iPad Pro right now. Yeah. It, it's pretty compelling. And what's really cool on that one, if I recall correctly, they put a fingerprint sensor on like the power button with that, which kind of makes me go, hmm. Why don't we do that on all of these devices? You can still keep your face ID stuff, but what is one of the things we've learned living in this pandemic right now? Face recognition for logging into your phone sucks when you're covering up <laughs> half your face. Yeah. Well, it's going to depend how courageous they are. Yeah, they were pretty courageous when it came to removing the uh, headphone jack. So hopefully uh, they're courageous enough to put that in the power and, button. And they were courageous enough to downgrade the security so that the face mat unlock could work with masks. Yes, if you're if you're think at all that it's as secure as it used to be, you're kidding yourself because if they've made it so that it can recognize you with half your face covered, then clearly they've downgraded the security. Uh, the other thing that they did announce was the Apple One service, which is a combination of six different Apple uh, services, included, including that Apple TV Plus service that I had mentioned earlier, Apple Arcade, <laughs> Fitness Plus, some other things, and also that 50 gigs of iCloud storage. So it's a it's a discount. It's a bundle. It's They're a coming bundle. at you. It's it's Tim's super yeah. saver. That's what it is. Yeah, it's a good idea. I think so, too. I agree. I think that these companies that have multiple services should bundle them. I think if you put the price right, people are willing to spend a little bit more and get more of your services because they they might not use them all, but they see the value. So I yeah. think that is a smart move. I hate the huh? name for it. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely you're, you're not I hate wrong. the name for it. <laughs> The one thing is done, okay? Google One, OneDrive, Apple One, Apple, yeah. Xbox yeah. One. Like, every, everything's one. It's it's dumb, and it needs to go away. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I hate it. But anyways, if you want to call it Suncast Bundle, you can call it that, too. I don't know why you would. But those, those were the things that were announced at this event, and it was a one-hour live-streamed event. And this is Outer what half. I want to talk about here. was. The streamed event was quite different than what we've been used to. Traditionally, Apple's followed the same routine for many, many years. They haul you into a theater, a bunch of press, and they shout at them. They show them demos, and they wait for the audience applause. And then they have no timing at all. And they do a whole bunch of things on stage to make people gush over the product. And and that's it. And then they're they're carted off the stage and the press is done. And, and that's really what it's been for a very long time. Well, this time it was quite different because it was a streamed event. They didn't do that. They they could have very well just thrown some cameras into the into the um hall, whatever it is, the auditorium that they usually do this. And they could have done what every other show has has done, which is like just a Almost the same format, but more in like a, a scaled down live audience list sort of format. But they didn't. They actually put production value into it right from the opening right to the close. Like the, the whole thing was pre-recorded. Yeah, it was completely pre-recorded. But because of that, it allowed them to do more production into it. Like the opening was this big, glorious pan of the what do they call it? Uh, Apple the One. Spaceship. 
No, what, what's the official the name? The spaceship, yeah. The spaceship, whatever, whatever it's officially called, I don't know. Whatever it's officially called. The Apple Campus. The Apple Campus. Mm-hmm. And going from, like, person to person, they had production value as it was, like, supposedly showing you through the building, like, going from one to the other. And, you know, like, it was obviously half of it was CGI, half of it was just whatever creative liberties they wanted to take. But it looked good. And was- because of this... Obviously, they did multiple takes, and if you pay attention to it, it's pretty damn obvious where they, you know, cut the different takes and things like that. But they were able to keep it concise and not have these awkward moments where they pitch a joke, the joke flops, you wait for the press to start, (laughs) and then the weird pity applause, right? Like, you had none of that. It was actually fairly enjoyable. I, uh... I was streaming it as I was working and, you know, kind of half paying attention. But then, like, something would catch my eye and I'd see it. And I have to go out to do something on my lunch partway. And I actually was a little sad that I had to go out and I decided I would rewatch it later. If it was just a regular event in the regular format, I would never, ever have streamed it, let alone looked it up later. I thought that they did a good job overall at making it a lot more concise. Yes, there was a lot of room for improvement still. But it was night and day better than most of the releases we've seen in recent. Well, here's something you need to consider. These these big media events and law and press events where they fly in people from all over the world. That's not for people like us that just want to care and see what the product's about. It's all about dominating a news cycle and ensuring that you have the press on hand to go ooh ah about what you have. COVID made it so you can't do that. So they pivoted to a model that we probably like more. But if you're someone who covers this from the press, you may not like as much because you're not getting your hands on time with these products you're talking about because you can't go walk the showroom floor after the fact and get five minutes with the new iPhone or five minutes with the new Apple Watch. You're reliant on Apple shipping you one if you're a person they care enough to ship early products to. And not everyone necessarily gets that. So we need to remember that these old events aren't necessarily designed for us who are the, the casual followers of things or just the regular consumer. They're designed for the media who is then going to spread the word about these Apple events because they pretty much dominate it for a day or two afterwards. Now, it's not to say you didn't dominate this time, but there's nothing else going on either is the trade-off. I will counter you there because before there was like when these first started, they were not able to be streamed because they had Wi-Fi issues. You only had live blogs and people read those live blogs because They were interested in it. They were very, very popular. And because they've become so boring, they are no longer of interest to the at-home user. And they used to be. So I I do disagree with your assessment. But remember, we're not the target of these events. They don't necessarily care if all of us watch the live stream. They care that you go to your trusted tech guru guru XYZ that you really like who was there in person and got to go play with these devices for 10 minutes after the event, who then shares their opinion. The fact that I don't watch the live event because I, I might I find don't it think boring. you're right about this, Chris. No? Because I, I do think there's a lot to people wanting to watch this because if you think about it, there's a lot of people that like to uh, watch live streams of stuff. And because Apple has gotten just so stale over the years, people have really tuned out. If you think about it, uh, Andrew Zarian on GFQ used to live stream this stuff. There used to be networks on Twitch or Ustream that that's all they would do were Apple keynotes. That's the whole thing. And people would tune in. 
That doesn't exist anymore because people tuned out. But here's nobody watches those we're, anymore. We're in the middle of a pandemic. There's nothing else going on. So any kind of event like this is automatically going to garner extra eyes, sure. which is why you've got more people watching it now. And I'm not saying that it's the matter of people don't want to watch it in general or things like that. It's more of just the the at home audience. I don't think is the primary target of these things. Normally, it is this time because they have no choice but to have an at home audience. Because coronavirus means nobody can come out to the press event. Nobody can come lay hands on with these devices. I still don't know that I agree with that because so much of what Apple does is selling to the consumer. And if you look at their past keynotes, a lot of that is they have all these pre-made videos that they show with all the new features and trying to make it all look slick. But quite frankly, I think this event was the slickest thing they've done yet. And it really refreshed the way that they do things for me, at least. Oh, I, I think, agree. I agree. And I think they should do more things like this. But absolutely. I don't, I don't think I, I'm, it's I'm really hoping that the us. event that they do in October where they announce the new iPhones and hopefully the Apple TV that they continue <laughs> this format. I agree. I hope they continue it. I think it worked well. Um, there are some people that said that they are robotic. I don't know that I agree, but then again, the bar has been set it's, really low at these events. So. You know, I will I will take that robotic over the awkwardness of a bad demo. Quite frankly, I mean, ah, oh, the, the the cringe of some of these things. Like even the fitness guy that they had on kind of creeped me out. He, was, I just, you know what it was? It it, it was the the bleach, the, the colored bleach blondish hair. Like, I don't know what it was. Like, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. it was, it, I agree. It did not fit his age. His, his voice was a little strange too. He sounded like a smoker or something or like something happened to his voice. Like he was sick. No, it was, there was, like I said, room for improvement, but I was really happy. Yeah, with it wasn't it. perfect. Yeah. I agree with you though. I hope they continue it. This is the model everyone's shifted to right now, though. Let, let's be honest here. Like when it came to all the console exclusive and release events and things like that, this is what everyone's had to do because of a result of the times where they can take multiple takes to do things. Then you don't have anyone dunking on you on Twitter because you tried to do a demo on an iPhone and it didn't work. So you had to go to the backup one. And the fact that people dunk on folks about that's just dumb, by the way, but they don't have to deal with that. It makes for a smoother, better polished presentation. And I am okay with that. I just, don't think it's going to be that way forever. I think once we get to a post-corona world five years from now, probably at this point in time, we might see it start to shift back a little more towards the live event because they like that live interaction, having the press on site. They built, when they did their new campus, they dedicated a whole section to this. Yeah, they'll go back yeah. for sure, for sure. And that's yeah. disappointing. So, fun fact, after the show ends, Stephen always makes us pity clap for him. That's true. It's absolutely true. He, <laughs> it's like that Jeb Bush clip from the 2016 election when he was giving some kind of speech somewhere and then he stops and everyone just looks at him and he goes, please clap. By the way, no joke. There's actually a clip where he goes, please clap. <laughs> I was going to make the, the Brooklyn Nine-Nine title, title of your sex tape joke, but I'll leave that alone. <laughs> 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 oh, wait, I did. All right. Let's, let's see what you did there. Listen, wait, wait, wait. No, come on. Chris is married now. He doesn't have a sex life anymore. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on from Apple to Google. And we're going to talk about YouTube allegedly having humans. Now, before we talk about this. Is this a disease? Suncast. I, I think every time you say humans while you deliver this news point, you should air quote it because with Google, you never really know. 
I don't think there are any humans at, at Google or YouTube, to be honest. As their keynotes uh, have shown. No, none of these companies, Google, Twitter, Facebook, Twitter, uh, none of these people have humans. Hey. I have proof of that because every time that I've reached out to them, I can't get a reply back. So Engineers are people too, Suncast. Engineers <laughs> are people too. Not that I've seen. Trust me. <laughs> So this is a very interesting story. It comes from The Verge and The Financial Times. YouTube says it's bringing back human moderators who were put offline during the pandemic after the company's AI filters failed to match their accuracy. Back in March, YouTube said it would rely more on machine learning systems to flag and remove content that violated its policies on things like, like hate speech and misinformation. But YouTube told the Financial Times this week that the greater use of AI moderation had led to a significant increase in video removals and incorrect takedowns. The Financial Times reports that around one, around 11 million videos were removed from YouTube between April and June, or about the double the usual rate. Around 320,000 of these were takedowns were appealed and half of the appealed videos were reinstated. Again, the Financial Times says that that's roughly double the usual figure. So it's a sign that the AI was very much overzealous to take down uh, videos that it thought violated their policies. So this is very interesting that they're going back to humans <laughs> to replace their moderation. And I think this is actually the way they should have done things all along. It's not like they had to not have people moderating this stuff, you can do this remotely. Anybody can do this from a computer anywhere in the world. So why they decided to switch it over to AI just boggles my mind, especially the fact that, you know, you're messing with people's livelihoods here when you demonetize them or take down their video. And the fact that they had to try and appeal those, and in some cases, they can't even get a reply back, and they're not even going to get the monetization back from those videos, well, then it's kind of moot to have AI that's overzealous to take down videos that don't really measure up to what's in the policies. Well, I think Ken in the chat room kind of nailed it. Number one, AI is cheaper is why they wanted to go that route. Because once you develop it, assuming it works, then you don't have to have as much of a human workforce. However, one of the reasons that it could also be and this is me just theorizing. I haven't read anything that backs this up. It's just a thought. But remember, there's been all sorts of media stories about Facebook moderation and some of the absolutely terrible videos that get posted on Facebook. And by that, I don't mean terrible sports hot takes and things like that. I mean, like person X gets beheaded. This guy gets blown up. This guy commits suicide live on air. And right now, a lot of that is person based moderation and the people that are just living in this muck day in and day out. It's screwing them up mentally. I mean, it would screw anyone up mentally, I would assume. But there are people that are getting severe depression, ending suicide coming out of it, or only lasting a few months on the job because they can't handle the terrible aspect of humanity that they're seeing here. I think that's where AI moderation comes into play, is that if you can get it to more target these terrible things that humans don't want to see day in and day out, that's where the win is. And I'm sure YouTube has the same problem with garbage human content getting uploaded, for lack of a better term. We're still a ways off from that, though. And the fact that basically they saw double the number of takedowns definitely implies that there's a bigger issue there with the mm -hmm. AI, AI, where it, should be, it shouldn't be doing stuff that it is. 
Well, it's Google. They treated us all like they're beta customers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I, my mind went immediately to the place that you just went to, Chris, is, is that horrible side of it. Like, obviously, there is the money side of it as well. And I think, I think the fine line here is going to be training that AI to deal with the horrible stuff. And the other stuff, maybe it identifies the other stuff and that goes for a second look or whatever, right? But the horrible stuff, like maybe you train that to be filtered and wait for the appeal process. And there will be a fair share of stuff that comes through that's not not in there, but it's almost like, to me, that's the better option when it is, when it is deal, when you are dealing with people who are having to see all these horrible things it's almost better that the AI deals with that category and puts it on hold. And unfortunately, if you fall into that, you have to peel that than having all of these people have to filter through these horrible things on a daily basis. So yeah, I think I think there's a balance. But um, the bottom line is we know that YouTube's takedown and reinstatement process is very odd. It's weird where yeah. there will be a, a a hack that happens to somebody's YouTube channel. It's identified as a hack because they're streaming a Bitcoin scam or something. And then the channel goes down and it takes like a week or two to get reinstated. It's long enough that they're able to go and create a secondary YouTube channel and get thousands and thousands of subscribers to that as well, just in time for the original channel to get taken down. And you might be thinking to yourself, wow, I feel bad for that person that happened. But then you remember know. that person and that channel also said the Apple TV was coming out. And then you feel like, hey, that's their punishment. Oh. <laughs> Come on, Chris. You didn't know where this was funny. I, I wish SP was here for it because his reaction would have been the best on that one. I'll be honest. I know exactly where that was going. Yeah, you knew it was. I'm pretty predictable. But uh, yeah, obviously there is a problem with the AI if it's that that high over what should actually be. And the last thing that I want to mention right now is that uh, before we head into my little news point here is I was reading on Tech Radar that it's looking like we got some new uh, Amazon devices coming later this week. We're recording this on Monday, September 21st. And apparently we're looking at some new Echo and Alexa devices probably coming on <gasps> September. Oh, I said the A word again. Jesus, I tried to avoid it. the word. Uh, coming on the 24th of September. So in a few days time, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this. Um, I have to say the Amazon device, like the releases for these devices, I think they have had the best track record in recent and having some things not be leaked. Everything else is leaked in the tech world, but there's always one or two surprises that seem to come out of the Amazon world with these announcements each each year. So we'll see if that continues this year. But uh, I always enjoy seeing what they do and then us analyzing how terrible they might be. <laughs> Have you uh, looked at this story about Amazon Sidewalk? I'm what? assuming this is going to be part of their, their, their uh, event that they're going to eventually talk about this during the event. But uh, Amazon Sidewalk is a new mesh networking system that they're coming out with to uh basically locate things it's very interesting i don't quite understand all all of it but um basically it says that sidewalk will link smart home devices and other amazon products using bluetooth low energy connecting beyond the range of standard wi-fi network meaning they'll be able to kind of triangulate stuff within their field 
I have not heard of this. Where are you reading this? Uh, so this was also on the verge. It says it's uh, meant to operate at the scale of neighborhood. Sidewalk would turn devices like smart floodlights and home assistance into network bridges, passing along security updates and commands from a central Wi-Fi hub. In addition to transmitting software, the signals allow Sidewalk to triangulate a device's approximate location based on its contacts with other Sidewalk-enabled devices. Uh, similar to a mesh, web, mesh network, let me find the example where they were talking about locating. Basically, they were talking about like a demonstration where you could have a, a, a little tag on a dog's collar and it could be running around the yard and it would be able to locate that dog. Hmm. That sounds neat, especially for when we need to find Chris because he's run astray. It sounds similar to what they've talked about before with like the Bluetooth low energy trackers and stuff like in stores that based off of your phone can know where you are and be able to properly serve you up information about the store and things like that. So I guess something it's a similar analogous product to how that was described. Maybe I don't know. It could be interesting. Yeah. It could I, just I don't be com- smoke and mirrors though, too. Yeah, I don't completely understand its entire purpose because it seems like there's there's multiple functions to this. And I'm assuming they're going to talk more about it during the event, or at least I hope they will. Remember, guys, Amazon owns a bunch of stuff, so don't be surprised if it's not limited to A-word type devices. They own a bunch of other companies, too. So be prepared for all sorts of different tech to potentially get highlighted. I'm looking forward to the event. I'm, I'm hoping that they announce some cool products. Maybe some cheaper Echo Buds because... They need to compete with that confiscated OnePlus Bud market. <laughs> you mean these right here, Steven? I said cheaper. Ooh. I said cheaper. Ooh. All right. Well, let's go ahead and move on to a segment where I'm going to talk about the thing I've been talking about for a long time. Uh- Did you have something else you wanted to say? I almost made a Brooklyn Nine-Nine joke right as we were wrapping that up, but I decided not to. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about the Pixel 4a. Yes, I did get it. I told you that last week on the show, I got the Pixel 4a, and I've had it for about a week now, and so I thought I would talk a little bit about this today, because many of us who have had an older, like, Pixel 2 era We've been holding on to our phones for quite a while because, to be honest, the Pixel 3 had some issues with screen and the Pixel 4 had many, many issues. And on the surface, many of the features that are on the Pixel 4a seem similar to the Pixel 2. But I thought since I ran the Pixel 2 for quite a while, now I've run the Pixel 4a for a little while, that maybe I would go and compare what my experience has been going from the Pixel 2 to over to the 4A. And I want to mention right now that the Pixel, the way that I'm going to talk about this is coming from the Pixel 2 to the Pixel 4A. There's a whole bunch of other articles out there. If you want to go and find all of the different details about the Pixel 4A, you can. I just want to talk a little bit about what my experience has been going from the Pixel 2 over to the 4A. And I'll start by giving down some similarities that uh, are between the Pixel 2 and the Pixel 4a. And the first is that the physical form factor are approximately 
the same. Yes, they are uh, approximately the same size. The Pixel 2 lands at about 146 millimeters by 70 millimeters by 8. And the 4A is 144 by 69 by 8. So they're about the same. The cameras, they are also pretty much the same on spec. That's what they say. But there's more on that in a minute. The weight is billed as well at the same between the 2 and the 4A. And, of course, they both have the coveted headphone jack. Yes, they do have the coveted headphone jack. Should you want to use that? Some of the differences, though, between the two on the surface is that the 4A, of course, goes with a screen that goes from the top down to the bottom, more or less, while the Pixel 2 has the old school bezels at the top and the bottom where you got a nice little forehead and chin on it. If you like that look, well, you'll be sad that the 4A now has a full screen, more or less. The size as such is a little different resolution. The Pixel 2 had a 1920 by 1080 uh, screen at 441 PPI, and the Pixel 4a is 2340 by 1080, which gives 444 pixels per inch. One of the differences here that I'll talk about a little bit later is that the Pixel 2 has the active edge, which is a feature where you could go and you can squeeze it squeeze the bottom of the Pixel 2. Like a stress ball? Yes, exactly. And it will not only relieve your stress uh, and possibly shatter your phone if you're the rock, but it will also uh, react in some form. couple settings you can do. Most of the time, it's just used to call up the Google Assistant. The 4A does not have that. And the Pixel 2 has a waterproof rating of IP67 versus no waterproof rating on the 4A. For base storage, the Pixel 4a is 120 gigs base storage. And by base storage, I mean only storage available. And the Pixel 2 was 64 gigs. Battery size is different. It's a 3140 milliamp hour battery on the 4a versus 2700 milliamp hour battery on the Pixel 2. So those are some of the surface overview differences and similarities between the two. But I want to talk a little bit more about some of the things that I, as a user for a week, noticed during my day-to-day travels on the 4A some of the differences. And Suncast and Chris, feel free to inject at any time if you'd like. Navigation settings. Many, many years ago on the official Gonna Geek show here, Chris and I talked a little bit about a new feature that was implemented into Android, and it was the two-button navigation. Way, way back when with Android, you always had three button. You had a back button, you had a middle button, and you had like an app button. You had the three buttons at the bottom. And then they decided... Like Goldilocks? Yes, exactly. Then they decided that they were going to add a two button, which condensed some of it. And one of the benefits to that was likely less screen burn-in because it was a little more adaptive. Well, shortly after releasing that, they created the gestures, where you would navigate by gestures. And that essentially made it so that the two button was kind of semi-retired because they were similar in some ways, but it was really like the, the gestures were kind of evolved out of the two button. And when I looked on the 4A, because I, I was a two button user, I went to set the two button and discovered that there was no two button available on the 4A. No, apparently as of the four, they have pulled it out. So those of us that still had the older devices could use the two button, but I no longer can use the two button even though my account had access to it before. No, on the Pixel 4, I cannot use that. So 
I was forced to use gestures, which I'll talk about again in a second, or the three button. Also, I noticed that screen color vibrancy is different in the options. On the Pixel 2, you got three options. You've got natural, boosted, and saturated, versus on the Pixel 4, where they have natural, boosted, and adaptive. I haven't really figured out where it's adapting. I'm not sure, but those are the three options that are available. And well, then it's supposed to be like Apple's True Light, or I think it's the True Light they call it for their screens, which is it uses the cameras or whatnot to detect what the light is around you and then optimally shift the colors in your phone to work with that. Like I have it on my iPad. It works really cool. And you can tell a difference. Like if I were sitting under my LED light here, my screen would appear differently than if I was, say, outside in the sunlight because the light is of a different wavelength. So they adjust the screen accordingly. How well that works, I don't know. But like the Pixel 2 hardware didn't support that, for instance. I think that started with the, the 3, maybe? I'm not 100% sure. Well, if you liked your overly saturated color display, you're going to have to go to <coughs> Samsung. I mean, another to, phone. Um, to be honest, that. we probably should have never had the overly saturated. Yeah. But that was, ever, that was Google's response to everyone saying, the colors are just not bright enough on my display. And like, but the colors are overblown on pretty much all the other displays. Yeah. You're getting the natural colors. Yeah. So they put that in there to appease people that were complaining about the screen. Yeah. And then in the camera settings, there was actually quite a few different options in there. I didn't run them all down, but just some miscellaneous things as you're going into the camera mode that were different between the two and the four. And again, the hardware is allegedly the same between the two. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of the thoughts. First, the gestures that I mentioned. The gestures was something that I hated using. I thought to myself, I don't want to go back to the three button. I don't. Three button's so old. I moved past the three button. So I put on the gestures and I didn't like it. So I quickly went back to the three button shortly after. <laughs> and then I was talking with my, actually my dad, I've been BSing him back and forth about the phones for a little while. And he's like, come on. He's like, I don't use gestures, but you can't go back to the past. And he, he was kind of goating me a little bit. And so I, I decided, okay, I'll give it another shot. That's a good conversation. Yes, I'll let his goading get to me and I will, I will give it a try. And I tried it. And I hated it again. And I gave it a solid couple days and I still hated it, but was getting a little better, but I hated it. And then I was looking down on my phone and I'm like, wait a minute. This is an Android 11. Because about a week before I bought the 4A, I got the, the Android 11 update. And so I, I realized I was running the Android 10, it hadn't notified me that it was eligible for the 11 yet. So I went in and I hit the update and I got Android 11. Something they did in there, there's a couple visual differences where you like drag the menus, but they've clearly done some fine tuning and there is a couple more options in there for the gestures. It was night and day difference. It was like, as soon as I upgraded, like within five minutes, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be set on gestures. It just worked a lot better between them. So if you gave... <laughs> You can't use that phrase, it just works, or it just worked. Uh, that's an Apple phrase. Okay, fair enough. It just <laughs> felt a little bit better. Does that work? There you go. Okay. It felt a little bit better. <laughs> and um, I, I knew right away that I would be able to get used to it. And I am very used to it now. So for those of you who were missing the two, uh, the two button navigation, try Android 11. You might feel more comfortable with, with the gestures on there. 
Um, I will say, though, that it does feel a little bit harder to do the one-handing as far as gestures go. Like, with the two button, I can almost always navigate, but once in a while with gestures, there will be something that I feel like I need to use two hands. Now, the cameras, let's talk a little bit about them because on spec, they're the same cameras. But as soon as I started taking some pictures with it, I noticed that it felt like it was different. So I grabbed the two phones, I put them side by side, and I started taking some pictures. And I, I did several, including selfie and main camera. And consistently, I found that the, the color on the 4A seemed more accurate. Like the, the two seemed more washed out. Now, my Pixel 2 is a, is a couple years old, but the 4A um, is brand new. But I don't know if that was the reason or not. But for sure, the colors felt more accurate on the 4A. Um, and like, if I was taking a picture of my kitchen, I have a, a fairly vibrant yellow kitchen. It, it was very obvious to me that it seemed more washed out on the Pixel 2. So I don't know what it is, but for sure the colors felt better on the 4A, which is weird because on spec, they're the same camera. Now, maybe it was more processing power because as I've mentioned before, the Pixels bank on AI processing. Now, Maybe somehow being a new newer phone allowed that to happen better. I'm not sure. I don't remember. Does the Pixel 2 have that, uh, what is they call it, the Pixel Core for photography? That separate coprocessor that was supposed to be there just for handling photos? I don't remember if we had that on the 2 or not. I don't know, but it's funny you mentioned that because I thought to myself that if it does, I would expect to see a change in the, um, in the processing time with the 4A. And what I found was that they did process for sure faster on the 4A. So maybe not, maybe, maybe though the two did and it doesn't matter that the 4A doesn't have that dedicated processor. It's just newer and it's got more RAM and maybe that's, that just makes up for it. But consistently when I was doing the side-by-side -side processing, I quickly would, would go into the photo while it was showing the processing thing. And for sure, like every single one that I did, every single test that I did, the 4A did process faster than the 2. So that was a concern that I had was like, okay, I'm going to the A series that doesn't have the chip. Am I going to see a downgrade in this? And so it was nice to, to not have that happen. That fear that I had of I was going to be sitting there waiting forever. Okay, what's this going to look like? It was faster than I was already used to by using the Pixel 2. Uh, as for the active display, I'll have to, I have to say it. Whenever I read that it wasn't in it, I, I didn't care about it not having the active edge, the active edge where you could squeeze on it, because I, all the time when I had the Pixel 2, would set it off accidentally and accidentally squeeze it while I was pulling it out of my pocket and have Google come up you and things like that. You accidentally squeeze it every time you pulled it I out? Would, I would accidentally squeeze it all the time, Suncast. And oh my God. I know, right? It, it was an accident. And... <laughs> In my, public, even? They sometimes in public, in crowds <laughs> oh of people. Oh, my God. Crowds of people, I would pull it out, and I would accidentally squeeze it. And then Google would come up and ask how she could service me. And so I ended oh. up um, realize, like thinking to myself, I'm not going to miss this, but I will <laughs> confess that within a few days of using it, at least once, I actually went to activate Google by squeezing it. So I, I did... I, I did apparently use it on the two more than I realized, but after a few days, I, I don't miss it. 
Didn't they put a gesture in there, like swipe up in the bottom left-hand corner or something like that towards the center of the screen? That brings up Google Assistant. Yeah, there is, there is a gesture in there. I can't remember what it is. Yeah, it is the corner. Yeah, it is the corner. Yeah. yeah. Um. So it, it can it's be actually just retraining. You got to retrain the muscle memory at this point. Exactly. That's all. But like I said, that kind of going from the two to the four A, I thought I should mention that. Mm-hmm. Um, for the display, I have to say, I even though the physically the phones are the same, I d- didn't really realize how much more I would appreciate the edge to edge screen until I got it. I I was kind of wowed after a day of using it. How much more like into this like what was on my screen I felt like I felt more like this is using all of my phone this this object that I'm using is fully displaying everything like from end to end there's not wasted space and when I went back to the two to do a couple things because I forgot to transfer a couple things I did feel like the screen was smaller so I I kind of thought that I was going to feel like it wasn't much of a screen upgrade when I when I bought the 4a but when I started to use it, it did make quite the difference going from the two with the bezels to the 4A up and down. So point of clarification, this was just for standard day-to-day tasks? Or are we talking about like watching videos and stuff like that? Yeah, sorry. Good point. I do from time to time, like sit there and eat and watch Netflix on it and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So that's that's sort of sort of what I was referring to was um, okay. That or or pulling up, you know, social media movies so and things like that. So my my question for you then, with the hole punch display on the four A, did you find that hole punch annoying? Like, is there always a part of your Netflix video that's always cut off because there's a camera there, or is the lens or is the video shift so that that's not part of the full screen? So it's funny you say that because of the resolution, because it is taller. That was something I did want to mention. Was it's it rarely actually gets in the way because it it, it isn't the right like it, it's a different resolution. So if I do pull something up on, on there that is um, widescreen, obviously I'm holding it the other way. It's not. It, it's still got some bars on the side of it because of the fact that um, it's not it's not sixteen by nine aspect ratio right so like you still have the bars on the side okay but the the, the way that it's sized in the screen exactly the, the, the top to bottom fills up the screen but it's not enough to fill it up side to side exactly okay perfect but that when, was one of my concerns when it came to media that whole punch would annoy me if i was mm-hmm. always missing the corner of my video i'd be like ah oh, this is killing me yeah and i'll continue i was going to talk on this in a minute but the the non-notch as i'm calling it the whole punch I, I think it does work really well because it is enough out of the way that most of the stuff isn't being interfered with because of the fact that the resolution is an odd odd aspect ratio. But one of the things that is really weird to me, like more than a notch, because I've seen a few phones with a notch, is like, let's say you're using your phone while you're otherwise indisposed. Because the screen is wrapped around the camera, it like really emphasizes to you that you've got a camera facing you. Like there's no difference between that and any other phone with a front facing camera. But the fact that the screen is like actually going around the camera, the first few days I was holding it, I was like, oh yeah, it's a good reminder that there's a camera on the front of it. Like, you know, it, it just, if you want to get all worrisome about a front facing camera and that there's a front facing camera on you, don't get yourself a, a hole punch camera because it's hard to describe, but it definitely highlighted to me that it was there. You know, it's easy to forget about it when the camera's in a black abyss, 
But when it's surrounded by a screen, it's pretty obvious to you. You got a camera facing you. So just a little thing there. Um, the I other... you'd be used to people watching you. I do it all the time. <laughs> That's fair. You do have cameras placed throughout here. Uh, the other thing that I want to mention, the fingerprint reader, same interaction between the two. I'm still happy to have it. Uh, I still like the navigation gestures where you can swipe down on the fingerprint reader um, like you could do with the Pixel 2 to get the, na- the notifications. I do like that. Uh, is it placed in roughly the same position on the back of the phone? It is. Yeah, it's pre- okay. it's pretty much the exact same spot when you look at it. So because um, there's some phones like they start moving it down on the phone. And I'm like, why would you do that? Because my finger doesn't rest there naturally. Yeah. So there's no difference there. I didn't know if if it is, it's not like I'd probably have to measure it to me. It feels exactly the same. It looked close enough based off what you showed that it really wouldn't be an issue for muscle memory to overcome. You'd eventually just shift that little bit of distance. Yeah. Whereas if if they moved it over or way up or way down, then you'd be like, oh, this is terrible. Why? Yeah. And then the uh, other thing that I wanted to mention is the speakers on the Pixel 2. The speakers were two front facing because it did have the forehead and chin. They were completely on the front. With the 4A, you've got one on the front, one on the bottom because there is very little chin on it. So that's what what you have for a speaker configuration. And I have to say, I did feel like a downgrade the first few days I was using it because once you've had those two forward speakers, it's hard to go to one on the bottom. The sound just doesn't sound the same. I will, however, say if you're holding your phone cupped on either end, I do feel like the 4A gives you a little bit that that cupping action kind of gives you a little bit fake louder sound and, and you know that's the way that the bottom fire speakers always were right like it was a big deal when they shoved them on the front they're like you don't have to cup your phone anymore to hear it but i i do think like as whenever i've held it it does feel a little bit louder on that right side than the left side but i would i would trade it in for two front facing any day of the week some concerns that I wanted to mention, uh, primary concerns that I have are things that I haven't experienced yet, um, which is good because after a week, there isn't anything like nagging at me as far as performance or anything goes. It's been far faster than my Pixel 2 was. I felt like I got an upgrade because it did react faster. Just enough things were a little bit better, like the camera color I was mentioning, the faster processing. Um just enough was different. I did feel like an upgrade. Oh, and the edge to edge screen. But the concerns that I do have are things that I, I know of, and we'll see what happens if they come to fruition. I really hope they don't. Is number one, the lack of water rating. I do have kids that is in the back of my mind. You know, I got to watch that, make sure I'm, you know, not letting them have it. Make sure that did you I water am. box it then. Yeah, pretty much. Right. No, I, I leave it just in a regular case, but um, it is a concern. Also, uh, as far as I can read, the Pixel 4a actually has older Gorilla Glass than the Pixel 2. So that is worth considering that for sure it's older Gorilla Glass than the current. So as far as durability goes, if you're one of those people who are are enjoying the spec of current allegedly being scratchless and crackless, which I personally dispute and have yet to see not microsurface scratches. But anyways, that's what they claim. Know that it is older Gorilla Glass in the Pixel 4a. So I did put a screen protector on that as well. Um, But on the flip side to both of these things, I think there's also worth note that at the price point, 
if either of these things did become a problem where I didn't break my phone, at least I don't have $1,000 into it with the price of a 4A. So that does offset that to a degree. And another thing that's worth note is I do buy into the Google Cloud storage quite a bit. I think that it works well. And although the spec has been increased to 128 gigs of base storage, it is non-expandable and that might be a problem for some people. But if you do use the cloud feature of Google, that might not be a problem for you. I personally am a bit of a believer that the cloud works well and you shouldn't bank to have all of your phones stored only on your phone because otherwise... If something happens to your phone, you lose all of those precious memories. I think it's important that you back them up. And if you're not using the cloud as your primary storage, then you're kind of straddling this line where you're like, what have I backed up? What have I not backed up? Or you're temporarily having them in the cloud before you pull down, as opposed to like going all in on the cloud where you're like, I'm just going to let it upload and manage my photos in Google Photos or or iCloud if you're an Apple user and just, just accept that as that's where I do that. So I don't find the 128 gigs to be an issue, but I should mention that on my Pixel 2, I did get free full quality upload because I think if you're going to do that, you should pay for the full quality. You shouldn't just accept the free downgraded quality. I think you should have the full quality up in the cloud. And with the Pixel 2, I did actually have a few more months before that expired. So I did lose that with the 4A. I gave away a few months of of storage. But on the flip side, I was working Google Photos into other areas of my life. So I just ended up getting the the um, two terabyte family plan that I can share between my wife and I. And, and I've started you know, liking Google Photos more and more since I started using it. Yeah, it works well. I've been mm-hmm. happy with it. So. And so I, you know, the cost per month of the two terabyte Google One plan is, is something I'm willing to pay. But um, it, it is worth a mention because, again, the Pixel 2, I was able to upload for free, at least for a few more months. So pro tip, if you have Amazon Prime, don't forget that you get free unlimited photo backups as part of that subscription. And if you put the Amazon photo app on your cell phone, you can also take your entire camera roll and have it upload directly to Amazon. So honestly, whenever I upgrade to a phone that no longer gives me full quality Google Photos, I'm not as worried about it because for convenience sake, they'll all be in Google. They may not be optimized or they may not be at the max resolution or whatever. But if I want the max resolution ones, they'll all be in my Amazon Prime photo backup. And that's mm-hmm. where that's where the stuff that I need the highest fidelity is going to be because I don't pay anything extra for that. The stuff that's in Google Photos is if I need to find something quickly because I can put like, say, Steven's name in there and any screen grabs from the show, since it already recognizes Steven's face, will bring up all of those photos or something like that. I do, I do pretty much the same thing, only with uh, OneDrive. Yep, same difference. Uh, pretty much like all of these. Photo. Go yeah. ahead. I was going to say, pretty much all of these photo sites or backup sites all have an app of their own now for iOS and Android. And all you have to do is download it and set it up. And it's configurable enough. You can be like, okay, Amazon, I only want you to backup photos when we're on Wi-Fi because mm-hmm. you may not have unlimited data or something like that. So you can set it to say, up. Oh, wait until you see them connected to this Wi-Fi, and then you do your upload. And when I had that set up on mine, it would just, as soon as I connected to my home Wi-Fi coming home from work or something like that, I'd see a little status bar update from Amazon Photos saying, uploading your photos, and it would upload them all immediately. And it was pretty slick. The, the, the thing that really sells me with Google Photos is that I've started doing a lot more like 360 degree photography. 
And most places don't support that, mm. but Google does. So Good that's point. really handy. And the other thing too is, is that a lot of times I need to go and find the GPS coordinates of a right. photo that I've uploaded. Yep. And Google is very, very, very good at that. I can easily just hit the info button. It brings up an actual map. I can copy the cords from that. It's super easy for that sort of situation. Yeah. That's because Google wants you to upload those to Google Maps and things like that. So if they put all <laughs> that information in there, it makes it really easier for Google Maps to put it in there appropriately. I, I think. use it all the time right now. Mm-hmm. And for me, I was already paying for a little bit of Google storage just with, you know, all the podcast stuff and, and whatnot. A year or two ago, I got really tired of like balancing storage. It was it was getting fo- far too frustrating for me. So I, I gave in and I paid for like the 200 gig plan or whatever. So I was doing that. Like I said, I, I'm sharing it with my wife. I've got kids who it also that same plan will tie into a couple things. So, it, you know, I'm I'm willing to at this time pay. But yeah, you're right. There are some alternatives, but uh, it was worth a mention. Uh, overall, no, though, it certainly was. Overall, though, I, I've been really happy with the upgrade. Uh, we'll see what happens when the... Pixel 5 is officially announced based off of the rumors I'm seeing right now. I think I made a really good decision. The There wasn't a lot. I wasn't looking for a huge upgrade over my Pixel 2. I was looking for just enough of an upgrade, something that was a lot more stable, had better battery life, and was a, a little bit of an upgrade in certain places. And the 4A does that. And I didn't want to pay a fortune either. So it checked all those check marks. And so far, I haven't seen anything that that has made me regret the decision at all. So I've been really happy with it. And the edge to edge screen, like I said, uh, it's weird. It feel it does feel bigger and it's hard to describe, but it does seem a little bit a little bit, I guess, less wasted space. So I'm happy to have that. Uh, Any questions either of you have about my one week with the Pixel 4a? I thought I was kind of asking them throughout your your demonstration. So um, I don't think I have any questions, more just a comment, which is we've talked about on this show that I've considered as my next phone. My my only concern, and you seem to echo it here, is that I've become kind of reliant on having that safety net of, oh, my phone's IP68 or 67 certified. If I drop it in the sink because I'm not paying attention, it's not the end of the world. And that's my concern is I may have gotten too lax and I'm afraid of, just a little oopsie daisy moment happening with the four and big oh crap get the minute rice out we gotta see if we can save this thing that's fair uh oh the other thing before we get to suncast question since we did talk services i should at least mention um i I did get my free and this is canada i got my free few months of youtube premium so that's kind of a bonus for me so that's kind (laughs) of nice that that i could throw that on there because uh that was really easy i just went over and you know where it usually shows you your 30 days or whatever? It just, I guess, detects you have a 4A and it tells you you get three months. So nice. Easy enough. Suncast, you had a question. Did you uh, talk about the battery life yet? Uh, battery life, I, I'm glad you asked that, actually. I didn't mention it. It is significantly better than the phone that I was using. Um, now, the thing that I need to mention is one of the big reasons I needed to upgrade was because my Pixel 2 battery was for sure dead. Anytime below 40%, it was hit and miss whether it would shut off. But I do find that like now I work at home, so I don't have the phone out a ton right now. But I do find that most of the time when I go to bed and I plug it in, in, I am sitting above 50%, like around the 60% range usually. So, you know, I have had it drop down quite a bit, but that was when I 
that was like a full day of nearly use. It was on the weekend. I had it out a lot. I was on a long call actually with my dad BSing. Um, I had video calls with my wife because she was at work and was, you know, videoing the kids on the break and things like that. So I had a lot going on that day. And out of my entire week that I've had it, there's really only been one day that I did have to charge it. And it was really towards the end of the day. It was like nine o'clock at night. So um, most days I am, I am, uh, over 50%, which is great. Nice. Yeah. So, so one thing you mentioned on that is that the 4A has a smaller battery than the two. No, it has a larger battery. Oh, okay. So never mind. And yeah. okay. Regardless, my point will still remain the same. <laughs> it is that the 4A has a less power hungry processor because it's using one of the Snapdragon, I believe 700 model. 735, I believe 735, it is. 735. Yeah. 735 processors, which is a lot easier on battery consumption. So your battery is going to last longer because the processor is burning through less, which is supposedly what they're going to be using. The Pixel 5 is a 735 plus. I think it is. Same reasoning. Well, if you have any questions for me, get in touch with us through any of the way. You can come to our Discord server, gunnageek.com slash Discord, or tweet me if you want. Or you know what you could do? Head to the park, find Suncast, and give them the message to give to me. That always right, we'll works do that. If you want to get a hold of Steven, just go to www.stevencast.com. Well, thanks for letting me talk about my first week experience with the Pixel 4a. I appreciate that, guys. I know you had no input into it. Uh, Suncast, thank you very much for coming on here. I do greatly appreciate it. Again, people can find you at GFQ Network as well on Twitter. Where? At Suncast. That's S-U-N-K-A-S-T. Is there anything else you would like to plug or promote? I don't think so. I mean, I really haven't been doing much because of the pandemic. A lot of stuff is just still shut down. Chris Farrell, anything that you'd like to plug or promote? Yes, actually, I was a guest on a podcast called the Geekly Speaking Podcast. We recorded Wednesday of last week or late last week. Well, we recorded last week. I don't even know the days have all blurred together. Blame the pandemic. But it was talking about all about the Xbox Series S and X announcements and things like that. It was a ton of fun to do it. The episode podcast is at wow the episode of the podcast excuse me is out right now i've retweeted it and i do believe that my co-host on the all things good and nerdy podcast one willie skittlewater nelson is a guest hosting on their most recent episode which should be dropping wednesday this week oh, when they talk about the ps5 announcement of course i would personally recommend that you get your xbox news from episode 345 of the official get a geek.com show that's where i would Look, recommend it consider the source talking about <laughs> it on both shows <laughs> i've been talking a lot about the xbox as of late i'm sure everyone's just waiting for it to pre-order period be over and have that dead zone before it comes out so that chris farrell stops talking about video games in fact i'm going to try and commit to this right now hopefully next week's gonna geek podcast or show rather, so long as nothing monumental happens, I will try not to have video game-centric news because that's all I've done for two months, I feel like. <laughs> all right, fair enough. Well, for episode 346 of the official GunnaGeek.com show, I'm Stephen John Drew saying, yes, hole punch camera. That's where it's at, not an ugly notch. I'm Suncast, and she had dumps like a truck, truck, truck. I'm Chris, and let me sing that song. Song, song, song. Bye. <laughs>
checking out another episode of the official gunageek.com show. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or a thumbs up on YouTube. You can always join us for our live recording sessions, which stream Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern at www.geeks.live. And remember, you can find our full back catalog at gunageek.com forward slash show. If you're itching for more geeky content, check out other shows on gunageeknetwork.com. Voice work was by Emily Prokop of the Story Behind podcast. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you back again next week.